Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. You ever get a, a car tune-up? You know, um, when my wife and I, we were headed out on vacation, we took our kids on vacation too, just in case we didn't realize that, but we uh, go on vacation, we take our car to get it checked out, because I know nothing about automobiles, and so we go and we get it checked out by some establishment or other. And so a car tune-up, uh, make sure that your plugs and wires are good, make sure that your distributor capped, your ignition, you can tell I looked all this up earlier this morning, uh, your ignition coils, your distributor cap, your PCV valve, whatever that is, it sounds important, uh, your serpentine belt, you don't want that going bad. So uh, you make sure that everything's nice and safe, that you won't break down on the way. You check your blinker fluid, make it's all right, make sure it's all good to go, and uh, that's what you do. And so we're going to do a gospel checkup here this morning. How's your gospel fidelity doing? We've come through a, a season of wear and tear, haven't we? We've uh, seemed to have another season of wear and tear kind of on the horizon. And the question we pose to ourselves this morning, has your gospel changed in the midst of those pressures? Maybe uh, you felt anxious about our our state and, and temporarily elevated the sovereign plans of God. Maybe you've uh, gotten frustrated with the lack of responsibility of others around you and, and you consequently respond by overemphasizing personal responsibility. Perhaps we've just uh, come through a difficult season and we've changed our theological stance. We've kind of reassessed and we've kind of shifted ever so subtly. And so this morning, what we might need is a gospel checkup. We need to, to make sure that our doctrine is straight and right that all of the things are in proper working order, all of our theology is in good straight lines, that we are are understanding the parameters of the gospel appropriately. And I wonder if we might just quiet our hearts here this morning collectively, be reminded of the grace of God, and sit underneath that grace for just 45 minutes. I wonder if we might collectively just stop the chaos that's turning in our hearts and in our minds, and if we might hear again the message of God's salvation by grace through faith again. So to that end, I want to pray that God allows us to hear this morning. Lord, we ask now that you would teach and train us through this story, this story about Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Rebekah. I pray that you would teach and redirect us for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. See, here's our big idea for our gospel checkup this morning. God mercifully bestows blessing on scoundrels. Scoundrels is one of those words you don't hear very often. It's a nerd word, isn't it? It's the idea that you're somebody without any kind of moral direction. 
And God blesses and bestows blessing upon people who act against his law, who break his righteous requirements, and God blesses them despite themselves. And so here's our story. As we tell the story of Isaac and his blessing upon Jacob, we start off where, where Isaac tries to bless Esau on his terms in verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to see that Jacob kind of swoops in and steals the blessing from Esau in verses 5 through 40. And then finally, Jacob and Esau are divided in verses 41 through 46. So let's dive in. We have a lot of text here this morning, so bear with me as we kind of work through this. But uh, let's start at actually in in chapter 26 in verse 34. uh, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. 27 verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. See, what the author of Genesis is telling us here is that Isaac is old. We've kind of fast-forwarded through the life of Isaac, and Isaac has hit this stage in his life where his eyes don't work, and he's now ready to pass on this blessing from God to one of his sons. Now, before we pass over this too quickly, we want to just notice some of the peculiar things that God has for us in this passage. See, when Isaac looks to pass on his blessing to Esau, there's a few things that just kind of stand out as awkward or odd. First, Isaac has no plan to include his second son, Jacob, in his blessing. Do you notice that? He's, he's here and he's talking to Esau. Esau, go kill and make game for me. Bring it to me so that I can eat of it and so that I can bless you. And there's no plans for Jacob. Isn't that weird? It's not normal. In fact, later on when we get to Genesis 49 and Jacob goes to bless his 12 sons, he has all of his 12 sons and two of his sons' descendants present with him as he disperses out blessings. See, Isaac is inexplicably anti-Jacob. And this is really going to come to a head later on in verse 29 when uh, Isaac thinks he's giving the blessing to Esau and what he actually is doing is blessing Jacob, but he indentures uh, Esau to Jacob. And we'll see this later on. Really, Isaac has this bent to kind of just be anti-Jacob for whatever reason. That re- division has been recorded for us going all the way back to verse, or chapter 25, in verse 28, uh, the author records this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Here's my dad joke for this morning. Isaac loved Esau. Why did Isaac love Esau? Because he got game, right? Yes, that's, good. that's both dad and pastor joke mixed into one. It's, it's glorious, isn't it? The second thing we see, though, is that this is kind of awkward as well, is that Isaac makes his blessing conditional upon Esau's food. Look at verse 4, the way it says it. Prepare for me some delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. See, Esau's delicious food is what endears 
uh, Esau to Isaac so that Isaac would extend his blessing. And in essence, Esau has to earn his blessing before Isaac by, through his palate, by his taste buds. The conditionality stated there in verse 4, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before, my, before I die. In order for Esau to receive blessing, he's got to bring good eats to Isaac, right? And so here is this uh, misnomer that Isaac has. See, Isaac thinks that he is the dispenser of God's grace. He thinks that it's his right and privilege to be able to extend the blessing of God to whomever he will. In fact, he acts directly contrary to the prophecy told to him in chapter 25, where God told him that his older son would serve the younger. And so Isaac is in defiance of that prophecy, trying to bless his oldest son, trying to to get benefit for him, to fill his stomach, so that now he is going to dispense the promise of God as he sees fit. So we see Isaac. Isaac's acting selfishly, but he's not the only one. And in verses 5 through 40, what we see is Rebecca and Jacob kind of conniving, planning, scheming together so that they themselves might kind of steal the blessing. Rebecca's undermining her husband. Jacob is lying to his father. So we see this in in 27, verse 5. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them for delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to me Uh, Bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. All hairless men unite, right? Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. See, Rebekah and Jacob seek to steal Esau's blessing. And what happens is Rebekah kind of convinces Jacob to obey her. And so in verses 5 through 13, we see that they develop this plan. Rebekah's plan is is pretty simple, isn't it? It's preparing food for Isaac, dressing up uh, Jacob to look like Esau, and then Isaac is going to pull off the deception. And she invites Jacob into her plan. In fact, she uses this word, obey, to open and close her statement. And if you go all the way back to verse 8, she says, obey my voice as I command you. Uh, Rebecca is pulling all of her maternal influence into this moment to say, Jacob, you have to obey me. You have to obey this thing that I'm commanding you to do. But Jacob objects in verses 11 through 12. Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. What happens if dad finds out? It's an awkward thing to say to your mother. It's as if to say, I'm nothing like Esau. How can I pull this off? Further, what what if Isaac curses Jacob? 
when he finds out. Rather than bringing a blessing, what if he brings a curse? If we went back to Genesis chapter 9, when, when Canaan had sinned against Noah, and, and uh, excuse me, Ham had sinned against Noah, and God cursed Canaan because of Ham's action, that has to be rolling through Jacob's mind. Rebecca, Rebecca tells Jacob that she will bear the curse, and not him. This whole thing kind of feels like that comic strip, like the Peanuts, where Lucy holds out the football and she's calling Charlie Brown to come and kick it, right? Like, like she's going to pull something away. She has no ability to actually take the curse upon herself. We find this out later when, when Esau receives, uh, when, excuse me, when Jacob receives the blessing and Esau starts to complain to Isaac, Isaac's saying, I can't remove this blessing. We get no sense then that Rebecca has any capability to remove the curse from Jacob. She's just using words. And we have to just stop and consider what Rebecca is in this moment. Re- Rebecca has been overwhelmingly positively portrayed to us so far. It was in chapter 24 that Rebecca was the one who, who watered all of Abraham's servants' camels. You're not familiar with it, go back to read Genesis chapter 40, 24. She's this humble servant in that passage. In chapter 25, she was barren, and Isaac prayed for her, and and finally she was pregnant with these twins, and they're fighting in her womb, and so she goes and she inquires of the Lord. She she is this uh, exhibit of faithfulness and and, uh, service so far in the book of Genesis, but here she's portrayed quite differently. When her baby boy is overlooked, the claws come out, right? You ever see that with moms? We know what that's like, right? When, when the baby boy is threatened, uh, the, 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 something inside of us responds. And here she is. She's undermining her own husband and stealing her own son's blessing. But Jacob, reassured by his mother, goes forward with the plot And so in verses 14 through 29, we see Jacob executes his mom's plan. Look at verse 14 with me. So he went and and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, uh, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. It's almost like you can hear the Mission Impossible theme song playing in the background while these things are going on. Rebecca is actively just making this food. She's uh, putting the the lamb skin on his neck and on his forearms. She is uh, doing all of these things, and really Jacob's not doing much of anything. He's just kind of compliant. So, In verses 18 through 25, Jacob presents himself to Isaac as Esau. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you've told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. 
He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. And then he said to him, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. See, Isaac is suspicious, isn't he? I mean, just consider the questions he asks. Verse 18, who are you, my son? Verse 20, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Verse 24, are you really my son Esau? On three separate occasions in the passage, he invites Jacob, who is pretending to be Esau, to come near to him because he wants to feel him, to smell him. And we get the sense that all of Isaac's senses fail him, don't they? He can't see that it's Jacob and not Esau. He can't feel that it's just goat hair. He can't smell that it's only Esau's clothes. He can't taste the difference between Esau's food and Rebekah's food. He hears the difference in Jacob's voice, but it's, it's not enough. Isaac is so confused by the presence of this scheme that his senses fail him. And it gives us this sense of inevitability here, doesn't it? That God is going to bless Jacob and not Esau, just as he had predicted a few chapters ago. And we get this sense that Isaac can't avoid giving Jacob his blessing, no matter how hard he tries. So what happens in verses 26 through 29 is that Isaac blesses Jacob. Look at this blessing with me. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now let's just stop and slow down and consider what exactly Isaac is extending unwittingly to Jacob. First, in verse 28, he gives the blessing of creation to Jacob. Notice what he says there in verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth. The the heaven and earth dynamic is often used throughout Scripture to, to just kind of put the arms around the totality of God's creation. And so Isaac is giving giving to Jacob the blessing of everything that exists, the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth. Literally, everything is to be at Jacob's disposal. In verse 29, uh, Isaac gives Jacob servants. Most notable is this middle phrase, right? Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Isaac is unashamedly subjugating Jacob to Esau, or at least trying to subjugate Jacob to Esau. But what he's actually accomplishing is that Esau will be subject for his whole life to Jacob. Not only has he simply not invited Jacob to the extension of his blessing, but now he actually wants to subserviate uh, Jacob to Esau And more importantly, as Jacob is the recipient of this promise, God's words about Jacob are coming true. The older will serve the younger. But finally, um, at the end of verse 29, 
He says, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This reminds us of God's promise to Abraham in in chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. See, this is God's protection to Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. See, the fallout of this now is going to come in verses 30 through 40. Esau discovers that his blessing has been stolen. Look at verse 30 with me. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in, his hunt, in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau returns, and Isaac learns what Jacob has done. Verse 33 highlights this, right? Isaac kind of finally figures out exactly what's happened, and he trembles violently. Isaac is moved to fear when he realizes that God sovereignly predict what God has sovereignly predicted has come true. The older will serve the younger. And the end of verse 33 summarizes it so well. Yes, and he will be blessed. See, Isaac resigns himself to see that, that what God has promised, what God has foreordained is coming to pass in his very midst. That uh, the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob no matter what he tried to do, what he tried to accomplish. And now Isaac is trembling with fear. But he's not the only one who responds with over-the-top emotion. In verse 34, we see Esau's reaction he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And what follows is this series of attempts to strip the blessing from Jacob and extend that blessing back to Esau, but the blessing given to Jacob was so expansive, so all-inclusive, that it cannot be uh, doubled. It cannot be re-given to Esau. This is what verse 37, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? 
You know, there's a, a form of martial arts. I know nothing about cars and martial arts are the darker areas in my uh, knowledge, right? But they, they, I understand that judo is this martial arts where you use the momentum of your opponent to establish victory, right? So that when they charge you, use their momentum against them. Isn't that what's happening here with Isaac and with Esau? God is using the natural momentum of their sinfully inclined hearts to establish the thing that he wants to do. See, God uses the aggression of Isaac against Jacob to establish Jacob. And so in verses 39 through 40, Isaac tries to bless Esau. The only thing that he can do is leave room for Esau's eventual release from Jacob's service, right? That's what he says at the end of verse 40. When you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So if we're taking score, we saw Isaac acting out of his selfishness. Now we see Rebecca acting out of her selfishness, undermining the word of her husband, uh, cutting off her older son, Esau, Esau, excuse me, Jacob lying to his father. What about Esau? We get this in verses 41 through 46. See, Jacob and Esau are divided. Look at verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older, uh, the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her youngest son, and said to him, "Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with me a while, or with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him." Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Verse 46, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? See, this whole situation kind of culminates where Esau plans to kill Jacob. And so, in fact, like Esau's descendants, the Edomites, throughout history will constantly have tension with the Israelites. This conflict will set the stage for uh, centuries and decades to come. Uh, This tension between Jacob and Esau will be written about, not just in the prophets, but in the minor prophets. It will extend through the end of Israel's history, seemingly. So Esau's plan is to wait until Isaac dies and then to kill Jacob. It reminds us a little bit of Cain and Abel, right? Uh, Abel is, is the righteous son, the one that's blessed by God, whose ex- offering is accepted. And Cain, in his jealousy, rises up and kills his brother as if to kind of just get rid of the competition. And that's exactly what could be happening here as Esau is just trying to get rid of the competition for blessing. And so if he kills Jacob, certainly he would be the one to receive the blessing. And I tell my kids this all the time, just a reminder, be careful who you tell your murderous plans to, right? You don't want to just go spouting off against anybody. If you plan to commit murder, don't tell anybody, okay? Because this is exactly what happens. Rebecca gets word. Now, of course, I'm being sarcastic, children, right? 
Maybe I shouldn't do that. But Rebecca gets wind of this. And she sits Jacob down and she sends Jacob away. Right? She sits him down and says, your, your brother's going to kill you. And so you have to leave this place. I can't be bereft of both of my sons in the same day. And so she makes plans to send Jacob to see Laban, which we'll be reading about in subsequent weeks, subsequent weeks here. But in verse 46, she also has to cover her tracks with Isaac. And so she speaks with him in, in verse 46, and she says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. And remember, back at the end of 26, what we started off is that Esau married two of these women, and if we go back a little bit further, Abraham made sure that when his servant found a, a wife for his son Isaac, that he didn't find a wife from the Canaanites, from the Hittites. And so uh, Abraham had forbidden Isaac to marry of any of these Canaanite women, but when Esau goes to marry, he doesn't marry just one Canaanite woman, he marries two. And so Rebecca, ever the opportunist, looks at this situation and is going to use it to convince Isaac to send Jacob out of town. And so she says, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's saying, I can't handle this. I need to send Jacob out of town. See how these two... Agendas line up. Rebecca's using this opportunity to send Jacob away. So at the end of this, Isaac has a plan for Esau, and Rebecca has a plan for Jacob. Isaac has a plan. Rebecca has a counterattack. But at the end of the day, what do we have? Who's the hero in this story? Who shows good faith in God? Who willingly, lovingly submits to their family members? Who shows preference to those that are in their loved ones, their, their family? Who, who is it? Who gives deference to, them, uh, to their family members? Nobody does. Let's take score in the scoundrel's race for grace. Let's just kind of take inventory of all the characters that are present in this family of Isaac. Isaac tries to bless the one whom God himself said wouldn't receive the blessing. And in so doing, he tries to cut out his younger son out of the will, as it were. Rebecca undermines her husband's wishes. And while we could say it was in line with the promise of God, there was no prayer, no inquiring of the Lord like we saw previously in Genesis 25. Esau, meanwhile, has married two foreign wives, and he plans now to kill his brother. Further, he was the one who sold his birthright to his brother. And, and Jacob, Jacob is ever the deceiver. He's undermining his own brother, lying to his own blind father. And we look at this, and it just feels like a Jerry Springer episode, doesn't it? This is a hot mess, to use a theological term. So we arrive at this conclusion. This is a family of scoundrels. They have no morally guiding principles. They are only driven by what they want, be it food or blessing or whatever they desire to do. That's what they chase after. And so they are just beholden to their desires. 
And no matter what they were before chapter 27, in chapter 27, we find out the real nature of these individuals. We find out that they are deeply flawed, that they have no respect for those that are closest to them. And yet, two of these are objects of divine favor. Isaac has received direct blessing from God. Jacob has received blessing from God. These men, despite themselves, despite their best efforts, are objects of God's grace and mercy. This morning, grace is only given by God. We cannot twist God's arm in order to procure his blessing for us. There's no words we can say or actions we can do that make God pleased with us. It's not earned by the hard working like Esau. It's not stolen by the manipulative Jacob. There isn't some loophole in the fine print of the scriptures that we can make ourselves recipients of God's grace. See, God's grace is only gracious when it comes from God's unaffected sovereign hand. This morning, I want to tune our hearts into this idea that you and I cannot earn God's favor. We cannot please God to such a degree that he would turn from his wrath to his grace. Instead, what we have to tune our hearts into this morning is that God willingly extends his grace on his own initiative. I want to turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. It's on the screens here for us this morning where where Paul uh, addresses this very issue. Look at how he describes us in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, Paul describes us as all of these things. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to lust and pleasure, malice, malicious, envious, hateful. The list given here in verse 3 isn't just the things that we might have been capable of, that we might check off a few of these boxes. The way Paul writes is he says these were things that described us at all at some point in our life. That uh, which one of us can honestly say we haven't been all of these things at some point in our life. We were foolish at some point. We were disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to lust and pleasure, malicious, envious, hateful. We have been all of these things if we're honest with ourselves. There's some caveat, some part in your life that you expressed these things in your own desires. So have I. What Paul highlights in verses four through six is the boundless mercy of God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Did you catch that? God isn't beholden to us. He's not uh, contractually obliged to you because you've done some good thing. 
What, what Paul says here is that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, and not because of some good work we performed that God extends mercy to us. You didn't help enough old ladies cross the street, or you didn't avoid uh, you know, uh, certain sins in your past. You didn't earn God's favor. What God says to us in this passage is that God has extended mercy because he is merciful. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And he goes on and he says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What? What on earth is he talking about here? The washing of regeneration. You might be familiar with that story where Jesus approaches Nicodemus and he says, if anyone uh, wants to be a part of the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Well, this term is is that same concept. It's the idea of being rebirthed. It's the idea that God raises up dead things and he extends and, and, and renews them. It's the picture of Ezekiel 37 when the prophet Ezekiel starts to speak the words of God over this valley of dead, dry bones. And as he speaks the words of God, the bones rise up and take form and they take on flesh and they're raised to new life. This is the washing of regeneration that you and I would be remade so that we're no longer defined by our past sins. Now we are the new creature that God has made us in Christ. And so we are washed in regeneration. We are renewed in the Holy Spirit. We are reborn through Jesus Christ. That's what he goes on to say. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through who? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. How are you regenerated? How are you renewed? Through the person of Jesus. As Christ was raised up after his death, we too might be raised up from our spiritual death. That is, our salvation doesn't happen outside of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So that our only hope of being born again, of being made new, was in Jesus' death. See, is there hope for scoundrels like you and I? Yes, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, you and I have this abundant grace offered to us, don't we? We have the beautiful grace of God extended to us that we might be made new. If we need a gospel checkup this morning, it's it's the idea that we need to check in and say, I myself was a scoundrel. I myself had no moral inhibitions. I was prone to my own desires and designs, and I needed mercy from God to remake me. See, recipients of God's grace should be gracious. There's something off-putting about this whole chapter, isn't there? There's a story of these individuals who are knee-deep in God's grace, but they can't extend graciousness. They are so familiar with the promises of God that they don't deserve, but they can't seem to extend kindness to one another. See, when we seek to earn our favor with God, 
when we try to just work everything out on our own, what it, it, the end of it is it creates tension with other people. When we see that we have to earn our salvation, when we have to effort ourselves into good standing with God, it creates competitors around us. We have examples of this in, in Matthew 20 where uh, a few weeks ago we looked at the sons of Zebedee who come to Jesus and say, hey, uh, give us the, the left hand of the throne and the right hand of the throne in your kingdom. And it creates this tension amongst the disciples as soon as they think they deserve this. Matthew 20 tells the, the parable of these labors in a vineyard and some work, you know, half a day and some work but an hour, but they all get paid the same wage and it creates tension amongst the laborers. See, legalism makes our fellow brother or sister a competitor for God's favor. And as Christians, we often speak about ourselves as sinners, but I've seen us have a distinction between my sin and the sins of others around us. We seem to have levels. There are sinners who are more incapable of God's grace than I am. Ray Ortland says this, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. And I think what's so off-putting about this chapter is there are those who have received grace who don't know how to extend it. Those who clamor and, and fight to receive the blessing of God, but don't know how to be a blessing. Let's be those who put on graciousness as we've received grace, as we kind of do our heart check and, and get our gospel corrected in the midst of everything. Let's be those who extend mercy and kindness to others, amen? I wanna pray to that end this morning. I'm also gonna pray for our time, our food. I know I'm over my time, so I've gotta wrap it up here, but uh, hang out with us, have some chili, um, and let's be those who are affected by God's grace. Lord, we ask that now, that you would affect us by the mercy and kindness that you've given to us. Allow our hearts to be softened because of the promise that you've made to us. Allow us to be people who speak graciously because we are affected by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.